Have you ever thought about the fact that Jesus read the Bible? That he would have grown up immersed in Scripture. That the one who John says is the Word of God in the flesh would have as a child and then as a young man and then as a, as a teacher read and speak what would have commonly be understood among his people as the Bible or Scripture. I understand they wouldn't have used the word Bible. Bible is a Greek, comes from a Greek word that means book. But you read in Isaiah, or you read in Luke 4, um, that Jesus reads from the scroll of Isaiah. He goes to synagogue. They hand him a scroll. There's a written word on that. And he reads the, the, sec, the reading for that day, which is Isaiah. And then he gives his comment on it. And that's when he says, this, has been, you know, this, this scripture has been fulfilled in your presence. In the Sermon on the Mount, in Matthew chapter 5, Jesus, over and over again, will point to things that they've heard, which are Scripture, the writings, the Word of God. At the time of Jesus, at the time of Paul, at the time of the apostles, the idea of a written word, what we would call a Bible, was very well established. And so the Bible that Jesus would have read is what we would call our Old Testament. But for them, it was simply Scripture. And I think that's important for us to know that the Old Testament is the Word of God. Now, unfortunately, in the last, say, perhaps 200 years, and I'm, I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on this, we, we've really hit the chord strongly that the Old Testament is nailed to the cross. And in Colossians, the, what's, what's being referred to is the, is the written word and its condemnation and its, uh, you know, uh, uh, the, uh, the idea that, it's, that it, what it held against us, that that condemnation's been nailed to the cross. We've been freed from our, as Paul will say in other writings, we've been freed from that inability to live up to the law. The problem with the law, Paul will say, is not that it's the law. The problem with the law is that you and I can't live up to it. But that doesn't mean that it's bad. We'll look at that in a second. Jesus, in fact, had high regard for Scripture. Um, I'm off my script now. Well, right. right we'll get through this. We'll come back to it. Uh, now, man, I'm really, because I really want to make this point. Where did I? You're getting a preview. How about that? Well, I'm way off my script. There you go. This is what I want to show you. Matthew 5. Take a look at this, okay? We'll just adjust. You get to see it all real quickly. Maybe that. Because uh, I'm kind of on a roll here, and I don't want to stick to the script. Matthew 5. Take a look with me at Matthew 5. This is the Sermon on the Mount. Jesus says, do not, and, and, and that's verse 18. I'm going to start in verse 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets i've not come to abolish them but to fulfill them now last week we mentioned that they wouldn't have used the term old testament they would have talked about the law 
They would have talked about the prophets, and they would have talked about the writings. And those were those, that was their three basic divisions of Scripture. The Torah, and then what they called the Nevi'im in Hebrew, and then the Kethuvim, which were the writings. And, and you get an acronym out of that, the Tanakh. So the law, and, and you'll see Jesus often mention the law and the prophets. Sometimes he'll mention the writings, but he won't always mention the three together. And the law and the prophets were the two biggies. Those are like the two pillars. You've got the law, you've got the prophets, you've got the will of God inside of those scriptures, inside of all those writings. And Jesus is saying, I am not coming to tear those down. I'm not coming to abolish those. I'm coming to fulfill them. Now, in an attempt to reconcile the idea that the Old Testament had been repealed, sometimes there's a definition of fulfill to mean, oh, that's it, we used it up, it's over. Throw it out like an old set of batteries. That, that, that's, that's not a, the, the best reading. Uh, sometimes, because what that is, is it comes from a legal reading of Scripture. That, that Scripture is nothing more than a legal or binding contract between us and God, and so we have to understand what our part is so that God will do His part, and, and, and there you have it. And as long as I can interpret that law correctly and do what God requires me to do, then He'll do His part, and we're all safe and good. The good news is, is that we've got a New Testament and so that, succeed, that, that, that overrules and surpasses the old one, which then is repealed. The idea is on the right track, uh, but it, it, it may not quite have it all. Let me put it like this. I think sometimes we come at it the way that we come at the Constitution of the United States. And uh, you have amendments to the Constitution. Now, two of the more interesting amendments are the 18th Amendment and the 21st Amendment for the simple fact that the 21st Amendment gets rid of the 18th Amendment as if it had never been there. The 18th Amendment, which was uh, ratified in 1920, is the Prohibition Amendment. That's where we get all the, the, you know, that's where we get all the gangster stories from the 1920s and 30s. If it hadn't been for that amendment, then, you know, you wouldn't have had uh, Jimmy Cagney and all that and uh, the guys in the speakeasy and, and everything else, and you wouldn't have had Elliot Ness and the Untouchables. You never would have had that TV show if it hadn't have been for the 18th Amendment. So they made alcohol illegal, but people still drank. They found a way to drink. And then, so knowing 13 years later that it didn't do that much good, 21st Amendment comes along and just says, 18th Amendment is null and void. That's not the relationship between the New Testament and the Old Testament. It doesn't work that way. You can't just go to the New Testament, take the Old Testament, wad it up like a ball and throw it away. To do that is to dismiss the will of God and the promises of God that God made to people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and David. Now, Jesus seems to have the idea, and notice what he says there, not the smallest letter, not the least stroke of a pen will by any means disappear from the law until everything's accomplished. But he says that heaven and earth will pass away before that happens. So what's he talking about? Well, if you keep reading in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus is interested in us not just living by the letter of the law, but, gra- but 
understanding the intent of the law. And, the, and as, as the prophet Ezekiel says, I'm going to write my law on your hearts, not on tablets of stone, but on the tablet of your heart. That's the f- fulfillment that Jesus is speaking about. Rather, you know, instead of thinking of the old covenant and the new covenant, which really is a, is a good understanding of, that, of, of the word testament, uh, instead of just understanding that as um, you know, the 18th and 21st Amendment and one repeals the other, what if instead we think of it like we do other covenants? Like the covenant of marriage, which we consider sacred. Now, in the one sense, marriage is just a, a legal transaction. We got your names signed on a piece of paper, and, and there you go. And Recently, the Supreme Court redefined the, the definition of that. That's fine for a legal status, and that's, that's, you know, they can do that. But the covenant is more than the legal side of that. The legal side of that is just a container. The covenant comes from God. The covenant can only be defined by God. And when you think about, you know, think about those days when we have people in this audience and, you know, and, and, I, and we've just had to put a rule because we could, we could be doing people's anniversary announcements, oh, you know, just every Sunday and birthdays. So this is the unwritten rule at West Art. On your, you want your birthday announced on worship? You've got to make it to 90, and, and, then, and then we'll do it. We figure that's an accomplishment. I mean, everybody's got a birthday, but 90? Now, nah, that's something. Wedding anniversary, you need to get to 50, okay? And then we'll acknowledge that. And here's why. When you have people that have been married that long, do you think they had any clue what they were getting into when they were 18, 19, 20 years old, somewhere in that area, making those covenant promises? I see a lot of heads shaking no. (laughs) I see a lot of wisdom saying no. Yeah, not a clue I'm hearing. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, people like, you know, I, I looked for a loophole, and no, I just couldn't, you know. That's covenant. You can't just repeal it. You can't just annul it. I asked a man once, because I said, what's the difference between an annulment and a divorce? Well, there's a legal definition to that. But I asked one of my Catholic friends where that language comes from, and he says, well, Catholic Church doesn't, doesn't recognize divorce oh yeah we don't we don't accept it if somebody gets a divorce so what do you do an annulment oh so we act as if it never happened yeah exactly it's a little bit of magic a little bit of you know window dressing changing words it's a good thing we don't do anything like that and uh you know just to make ourselves feel better but this i think is more of the relationship between the old covenant and the new covenant and really it's the same covenant but it is renewed in the sense that jesus embodies that covenant and shows us what it's really all about and when you read his words through the sermon on the mount jesus will go through that and he'll say you've heard that it was said but i say to you and you'll notice he doesn't abolish the old teaching But he gives it its greatest definition. He says, listen, this isn't just about keeping the legalistic 
restrictions of the law. It's about living out the heart of it and understanding why that law was given to make us into the kind of people he wants us to be. So I say all that to say, and let me back up here through all this, what we need to do is get a, um, we need to get a appreciation of what's going on in this background, in this history of this collection of Scripture that is really the Bible that Jesus would have read. So understand that what you've got here is a collection of documents that are written over 1,100 years. That means that there are portions of Scripture that are aware of other portions of Scripture. This, this isn't, uh, you know, the, the Old Testament is not some Victor Hugo novel that he just sat down, you know, I'm going to write this thing out. You know, it's not some Stephen King novel where he, you know, knocks it out on a typewriter in a, in a, you know, in a month or a year or something like that. It's a collection of writings that build and grow and a story is continuing and commentary is being made so that you'll have in the days of the kingdom you'll have people saying now when you have foreigners who are in your land you're not going to mistreat them the way you were mistreated back in the days of the exodus uh, when you were in Egypt seeing there's an awareness of the history so you've got a broad range of documents there from different periods. 39 books of the Old Testament, and they deal with events from the beginning of creation to the end of time. That, I don't think that leaves anything out, does it? I mean, there's, the, there's some address to all of history. Now, it doesn't mean that the documents are, are, are written on the fly, you know, day one creation and God scribbling on his notepad writing Genesis. No. That's the story as it comes out later, but it's referring to events that happen at the beginning of creation, and it's referring to events that will happen in the culmination of time. But you do have history going on in the background. So it, as well as this big cosmic scope of things, you've got these these historical events that are happening, which, by the way, separates out Scripture from a lot of um, uh, religious writing in that it's very welded to the world that we live in and doesn't divorce itself from, a, from the world that we live in with uh, philosophies or ideas that have no connection. They are rooted in time and space, but also speak of the infinite virtues and the 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 ever-living god so you've got um and, and this is just this don't take this as um hard and fast lines to be drawn this is kind of a uh kind of a guide to what you've got you've got this period where you have the calling of abraham and the formation of israel and by the way i I'm, i know i didn't start with creation because those those stories actually are not concerned to connect themselves to anything historical. How can you connect the beginning of time to anything historical when time hasn't even been invented? It, it doesn't work that way. So we, we, tell the, we tell about God creating, and then Genesis moves us to Genesis 12, where we get to this point and we're told, now God calls a man named Abraham. And that's, that's kind of where the, the recent story begins. And then you have the Exodus and you have the, the giving of the law. And it's that, it's that God-given deliverance from Egypt that shapes the people. 
And if you think, well, we'll get to that in a second. Uh, let's keep going. So then you get to the rise and the fall of the kingdom, the formation of the, of the kingdom period. Uh, they've settled in the promised land, but then they want a king, and so you have the establishment of this political identity for Israel, and that sets about certain ideas. And then they lose all of that, and Israel and Judah are taken captive by Assyria and Babylon in different time periods. And then you have the return. You have a new set of writings that come along about the time of Ezra and Nehemiah, and and now the people are going back to the land after a, a generation or two. They're rebuilding. They're restoring all of this, and they see God at work in that. And all throughout it, that's why you can't just make this a sixth point out there on the end, but all throughout it, you have this expectation that there's going to be a Messiah, God's anointed one. And so the four big themes that you see running through all of this or building throughout all of this is that you're going to have this idea of the land with, the begin- with Abraham. I'm, Abraham, you leave the land of your fathers and you're going to go to the land that I'm going to show you. That's an important point. That, that, that still rings and resonates for us. He's saying, Abraham, I'm going to put you in a land that you cannot claim because of your lineage or birthright, but I'm going to put you somewhere, and I'm going to make you prosperous there, and I'm going to make your offspring innumerable. Abraham can't even fathom what all God has in mind. And so you read that story, and you see how he begins with the most unlikely of people. God's plan is I'm going to make one nation that's going to show everybody how I want them to live. But to do that, we're going to have to get someone. We're going to have to do some nation building. We're going to give him the land and we're going to give him children. You can hear all the counsel of heaven telling God. Sounds like a good plan. Why don't we grab some 16-year-old kid and tell him that he can have multiple wives? That'll build a nation. God says, I want the 100-year-old guy and his wife that can't have children. What kind of sense does that make? Because God wants to show that his hand is in this. And then you have the law. Now we might think, well, okay, now now we're getting into sensible stuff, right? I mean, that's none of that Abraham and patriarch stuff. Well, is it really? Think about it. God now has the land. And, well, he's got the people. Rather, I'm sorry, I got that backwards. He's got the people. By the time of the Exodus... You see that the children of Israel, the children of Jacob, the children, the, you know, the, the, the descendants of uh, Abraham have become numerous. But where are they? They're in Egypt. And they're captives. They can't show anybody anything except how to make bricks. That's the only thing they know how to do is make bricks. God's got to get them out of that land into the promised land and he's got to show them a better way and so it takes a generation but it's during that transit out of Egypt and into the land of promise that they start learning about God that's where the law is delivered that's where they receive the manna in fact if you think of all the formational things that happen to Israel the things that make them who they are where does it take place in the desert or in the promised land. All the things that they gained came through the days of the desert. 
sometimes we have this idea that, you know, well, listen, when we get all of our stuff in order and we get safe and everything's in, you know, when everything's in place for us, then we'll start learning and growing. We've got it backwards. God shapes these people in the fire. He shapes them in the desert. All the things that happen to them that they remember forever come to them during the time of obstacles and the time of trials when they are dependent on God. In fact, he warns them, when you get into the land, be very careful because then you'll start relying on yourself and you'll forget that God did this for you. And so they get the law and they get God's... Now think about it. These are a people who for generations have been enslaved. They have no identity outside of slavery. And that's the problem with slavery. It robs the people of their identity. They don't have a story. They don't have an identity. They don't, they, they don't know who they are. But through the law, they learn this is who you're supposed to be, not just for your sake, but for the sake of the world. Because I'm God. I've chosen you. I'm God. I'll be your God. You'll be my people. But to do that, you're going to have to adopt a certain kind of holiness. That story is being told in Exodus and Numbers and in Leviticus. And their settlement into the land is being told in Joshua. Well, eventually you get to the, you know, you get a new theme. The third theme is the theme of kingdom. Now, this changes them. There's a bit of a battle at first. Samuel tells them, listen, you don't want a king, because when you get a king, it's going to change. Eh, king's going to take your goods. He's going to take your sons and daughters. He's going to tax you. He's going to take the produce from your land. Yeah, yeah, we know, but we want a king. Because if we've got a king, then we've got a champion, and we've got somebody who will fight for us, and we've got somebody who will represent us, and we'll be just like the other nations. I mean, we don't, we, we want, to be stop, we don't want them to continue to look at us as these um, kind of, you know, descendants of slaves and sheep herders and nomads. We want to be like everybody else. And God comforts Samuel and says, don't worry, it's not you they're talking about. He says, they got a little beef with me. He says, but I'm going to give them a king. And he goes, I might just make it work. And so you have, I know the first attempt doesn't, not entirely. It's not all bad. But then when you get to David, and by the way, David's the one who takes things that do not belong to him, as in other people's wives. But God will redeem that situation. And constantly through this story, God is taking the things that they get wrong and he's making it into something better. So he takes the idea of a king and he says, and he, and, he, and he continues to give them this promise that there's going to be someone sitting on the throne of David forever, that there's going to be a king. And this is where you get the idea of the Messiah. And this is why Israel had its hopes in the time of Jesus that there would be a new Messiah who would restore their fortunes. But they had no idea what it was really all about. And then that brings up the, the fourth part of the, you know, the, the puzzle, the temple. By having the temple, and you read when Solomon dedicates it, they have that location that becomes God's address on earth. It becomes a place where God can be spoken to, and it's recognized that God does not dwell there. He can't be contained there, but God is merciful enough to bring his holiness there. And this temple becomes something very special. And the idea of the temple and the idea of a place where we encounter God, where we meet God, becomes a, a very important idea. And, and all of these ideas 
they don't carry over into the New Testament. They're prerequisites for even understanding what the New Testament's talking about. But not for understanding the gospel. We'll look at that next week when we talk about New Testament. But, but th- these items become important principles in understanding what God is doing with the people on earth. But then all of that is taken away. What do you do when you don't have a temple? What do you do when you've been taken out of the land? What do you do when you no longer have your king? But you can have the law. You can have the word of God, and you can still live by that. So their time of exile becomes very different than the time of captivity in Egypt because they hold to the law. So when we're, when we're looking through the Old Covenant, when we're looking through the Bible that Jesus read, it, it helps us to be mindful that God is writing, or the, the, be mindful of the place, of, uh, the, the place and the time where this writing is taking place because it becomes the history of God's people. And it becomes the stories that they tell, and it becomes the stories that Jesus connects to. And even Paul will connect to it, and he'll translate it for Gentiles. Uh, Be mindful of the style of literature being used. There's there's at least ten different forms of literature being used in what we call the Old Testament. There's poetry, there's history, there's prophecy, the list goes on. Uh, And be mindful of the theme of the book. What's it it all about? I think that's going to help us get through that reading. When you look into the New Testament, you see that the New Testament thinks that these old scriptures are very important. So when James writes, James may be one of our earliest documents in what we call the New Testament. He says, do not merely listen to the word and so deceive yourselves. Do what it says. Now, whether or not James really is the earliest document, it's, it's, it's still referring to what when it refers to the word of God? It has in mind Scripture. The word that would have been passed down and would have been studied, would have been read. Um, You have scriptures like Galatians 3.10. All who rely on observing the law are under a curse. Now here's where we get this idea that we need something better than the law. All who rely on observing the law. In other words, if our faith and our salvation is based on our ability to observe the law flawlessly, we're doomed. He says, it's written, cursed is everyone who does not continue to do everything written in the book of the law. So, now now here's what's interesting. If Paul writes in Galatians that everyone who relies on observing the law is under a curse and he's going to back it up with scripture but he's going to back it up with scripture that by the time of him writing Galatians is supposedly null and void Paul's just dug himself into a hole where is that written where is he getting that scripture well he's not getting it from Galatians because he's in the process of writing that he's getting that from what we call the Old Testament but he's using scripture to point out the fact that observing the written law was never meant to be the solution we'll keep going because we don't have time to study of galatians 3 uh here's another comment that paul makes romans 7 7 is the law sin he says certainly not he says the law is good in many ways later on 
he'll talk about it. He'll talk about the fact, though, that we're, we're convicted by the law. But he'll also talk about the fact that being convicted by the law is an accomplishment. Because if you don't know that you're doing something wrong, you can't improve. You can't rely on God. When they come out of Egypt and they're given the law, they live the lives of slaves. They do not know these basic things. It's not like they're good, decent, moral people living the lives of slaves in Egypt. They're being oppressed. They don't even know who God is. They, 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 uh, they, they don't understand how to worship him. They don't have any of the insight that you and I do even now. But that all gets revealed to them through Moses and, and, and through the law. Now they understand the vision. Now they know who they're meant to be. And it changes their definition and how they understand themselves. You know, they say that in America that the, um, the church tradition remains active and alive in African-American culture. You know, I mean, if, if, if you pay any attention at all to the times and what's going on, I mean, they have political rallies in the church. And we might, why, why in the church? Well, think about it. Church is the only place where people who once, their, their generation, they were, they were slaves. That would be the only place where they would be given any kind of self-worth or identity would be when they gathered and they heard that the people of Israel were just like us. They were in, they were in slavery. I think that's the way it ought to be for us, too, that we find our worth and our identity in God's Word and in our worship and our encounter with Him rather than finding our identity and our self-worth out in the world and then coming here because we need a little bit of you know, a Christian gloss coat to put over our lives. I'm basically an okay person, but I need to just you know, kind of shine it up a bit, you know, patch up a few areas. God takes these people who were in Egypt he gives them the law, and now they know who they are. But they also know that they fall short. They also know that they are not holy as they ought to be, holy as he is holy. They know this. But now that they know this, they can do something different, and they can be a light to the world. Paul doesn't just wad up the law and throw it away. Um, consider what Jesus does when he picks, when, when Jesus picks up the writings in Hosea 6, and, and he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Some people call this in Matthew 9 the, the other great commission. Because the, the, the way that Matthew 9 is phrased is very much like Matthew 28, the great commission. As you go, make disciples, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And teaching them to obey everything I've taught you. That's the Great Commission. The way Matthew 9.13 works, he says to the Pharisees, As you go, learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Jesus is saying that to people who are supposed to be experts in the law. But what he wants them to understand is that their fastidious way of keeping Every detail of the law is not what it's about. Jesus isn't wadding that law up and throwing it away. He's quoting it. <clears throat> He's saying, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. He says, that's your scripture, the scripture that you should know. He says, you need to, 
in a paraphrase, Jesus is saying to the Pharisees, he goes, hey, y'all are the teachers of Israel, right? He goes, I think you need to have a Bible study, and you need to begin with Hosea, that little phrase where he says, I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Later on in Matthew 23, in the section that we call the woes, he'll say, woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, you hypocrites. He says, you give a tenth from your spice rack. In other words, oh, we make sure that we give a tenth of everything, even our valuable spices. He says, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law like justice and mercy and love. Jesus doesn't come to abolish the law. He comes to show us where the center of gravity is in it. And in that way, he fulfills it and enables us to really understand what's there. Uh, Now, by the way, none of this means... Think about what he just said to the Pharisees there in Matthew 9. Because instantly our, our, our legalistic nerves may kick in and we may say, does this mean we've got to go back to sacrificing goats? Does that mean that, you know, no. We know that that's not what God desires. He doesn't desire sacrifice. He even said that in the Old Testament. And because the story wasn't finished and he accomplishes it through Jesus, that does mean that things are very different. But it doesn't mean that God's intent and his desire and his teaching and his plan and his word and his promises were wadded up and thrown away. And and I'm going to tell you this, that is a very dangerous premise if we accept that or try to argue for that. Because if we argue that, then that means that God breaks his promises. We, We don't need that. We need to trust Jesus that Jesus is showing us how to truly understand the scriptures from the Bible that he would have read. And he wants us to value them, but he wants them to, us to value them through the understanding of the word that he gives us by being the word in the flesh. So is there any significance to this Old Testament, this Old Covenant? Absolutely. 2 Timothy 3.16, Paul writes that it's inspired. He says all Scripture is inspired. It's God-breathed. It's the Scripture that was used by Jesus, the apostles, and the early Christians. They they would have read these uh, verses. They would have read verses like Isaiah 53, and they would have understood that that was Christ. They, uh, They would have read the Psalms. Their knowledge of God would have come from that. The, uh, along with the translation of Scripture in the 2nd and the 3rd and the 4th century, it's not just the writings of Paul and the Gospels that are translated into other languages and copied. Deuteronomy is copied. The Old Testament is copied. The Psalms. I mean, think about that. They, those early Christians, preserve the Hebrew Scriptures. Why? Because they believe that they learn and they they see more of God in that and they understand more about their Savior and their Messiah from that. They believe that it's God's Word. It's inspired. Uh, It's foundational to understanding God. It's it's very important to that. It's it's foundational to understanding Christ. You have passages like Isaiah 53. Try to read Hebrews without using the Old Testament as crib notes. It's nearly impossible. I mean, you, you, uh, you, know, you benefit from it. But by the way, the early Christian communities, even those that were made up primarily of Gentiles, now they didn't require, you know, you read Acts, Acts 15. They did not require Gentiles coming to faith 
to keep the rituals of Israel, but they did want them to know the God who was revealed as the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, the God who was active in them. They do, you know, it is important that they understand that. So we get connected in, we get grafted in, as Paul said, or as Luke says in the, in the genealogy, he starts it back with Adam. If Luke is for Gentiles, then he begins it with the story of Adam. He, there's this understanding that this is our legacy, this is our story. So no one is just... In fact, there were attempts in the early centuries to take the Old Testament and literally wad it up and throw it away. There were groups that tried to do that. And as a whole, the church, the people of God said, no, don't do that. Same way that Jesus said, I'm not here to destroy it. I'm here to fulfill it and to bring about what it really is really all about. Um, so it's foundational in the New Testament, and that's where we'll pick up next week. Um, eh, we'll use that chart for next week too, but that just shows you a comparison of the differences between these. Uh, they're, 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 they're not exactly the same. We'll bring that up again next week. Right now, if you need to partake of the Lord's Supper, it's been prepared in room 100. Uh, let's stand, let's sing this song together, and Lee Peters will dismiss us in prayer after this song.